Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. It is my immense honor to have as my conversation partner today, Dale Hansenberg. She is an award-winning author, editor, business owner, foundation president. Uh, she's also served on several boards of international development organizations, including World Vision, Opportunity International, International Justice Mission, and MAP International. In addition to all of those uh, incredible accomplishments, Dale has been a mentor and friend to mine over the years. Dale, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. I'm so glad to be here. Dale, you've authored multiple books. The most recent one is Strong Girls, Strong World, A Practical Guide to Helping Them Soar and Creating a Better Future for Us All. What What was the genesis? What's the backstory behind this one? Why were you Why were you compelled to write this book at this moment? I'm, a, I'm the mother of two sons. So in some ways, it was even uh, more surprising that I would go after this. I'm a, now a grandmother, and my first grandchild is a little girl named Evie. And as I watched her start to grow and develop, I was reminded of all the other little girls that I'd met as I've done my travels around the world um, in the developing world. And I started to realize two things. One is that she has so much potential. And of course, I imagine that she's the most amazing little girl in the whole world. But she also has that potential because she's getting support. She is getting her medical attention. She's getting clean water. She's getting the nurture of her family. And as I see that, and then I realize how many other little girls around the world are not getting that. Um, so many little girls around the world are incredible, um, are, you know, have incredible potential, could, you know, could be president of their country, could do all kinds of things. But when they don't get vaccinations, when they don't get clean water, when they don't get the nurture of their families, when they don't get education, um, they're cut off from any of those opportunities. And so really, it was looking at Evie and saying, you know, I want every little girl to have what Evie is going to have. You do unpack this in the book. I've read it and can't recommend it highly enough. You do talk about why challenges are different for girls and young women than it is for their male counterparts. In broad strokes, why, why does that tend to be the case more often than not? I think I was surprised when I started going into this because, you know, again, we live in a context where women have made such great strides and we can we can look around and say, wow, you know, women have come a long way. They're, you know, leadership positions and all of those things. But the fact is, in most of the world, uh, women are still girls, especially are discriminated against from the very start. And in fact, I mean, one of the things that shocked me most was um, there are countries where the male population is so much greater than the female population because they've chosen to abort children uh, who are, you know, girl child when they find out that they're pregnant. So women, you know, there's such a cultural desire to have boys that um, that a woman, that a, the couple finding out they're pregnant will find out that they are having a girl and will abort that child at such a high rate. I mean, we don't, obviously they don't say that they're doing it because of, of gender, but in countries like China and India and Afghanistan and Vietnam and a number of other countries, the male population is now so much greater than the female because of that. So that's, I mean, that's just from, from the very start to say that was shocking to me to realize that the cultural bias against girls starts from the very beginning. And you, know, you, you talk about some of the challenges, whether they be medical, financial, or educational. What Can you lean into that just a little bit and give our audience sure. some, some broad, like a, a 30,000 foot view about what some of those hurdles are and what some of the solutions are to overcoming them? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, when a woman has a, a, a girl in many parts of the world, um, people say, oh, I'm so sorry, or try again, or, um, you know, maybe the next one will be a boy, which... 
again, sets up a whole scenario for this girl to be discriminated against. So she's expected from the beginning to help at the home. She's held, she's the um, main person to provide water for home, for the home. So, uh, you know, little girls all over the world um, spend millions of hours every day gathering water because it's something they can do. So when they're gathering water, they're not going to school. So losing the ability to go to school is one of the biggest factors that creates a problem for girls. Because when a girl is educated, then she can make good choices about her life. But when she can't go to school um, and when when her family decides that it's more important for her to be gathering water or taking care of younger children or whatever she's doing in the home, um, then she's not getting an education. And an education is a, a huge factor. I mean, the World Bank estimates that countries are losing billions of dollars because they're not educating girls and they're not able, able then to contribute back to the, to the, to the country um, or to their community. So education is huge. And there's so many things that we can do to help girls get educated. I can go into some of those if you want to, or we can talk about more of the, the broader areas. No, please. Let's go ahead and talk about education, because I think that is something that we, especially in the West here in the States, take for granted so readily and and forget yeah. or don't realize that that's just not an, an option for millions of young women around the world. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because we just think of education as something that's required. And yet education is a dream for so many girls. I mean, they 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 dream of being able to go to school um, and they're hampered by a number of things. As I say, they have to work in the home and it's more important for them to stay at home and work. They're hampered by distance. I mean, schools are not, you know, especially a lot of the rural population cannot get to schools easily. And so a girl has to walk miles sometimes to school, and that is often dangerous. So, you know, in just a little sidebar here, one of the ways that, that overcoming that is there's a group called World Bicycle Relief. They actually provide bicycles for girls, which is such a, and I think they're in Michigan, actually. So, um, or maybe Chicago. Anyway, they're in the Midwest, uh, World Bicycle Relief. And they do a wonderful job of providing bicycles for girls to actually ride to school and be able to get an education. So that's, you know, it's part of it is breaking down what are the barriers and then how do we actually solve these problems? And that's that's one of the things that I'm so concerned about. Another thing that happens is when girls, um, you know, become adolescents, um, when they have their period, they stay home because there's no place at school for them to actually uh, have any kind of privacy or any kind of sanitation facilities. So for the most part, uh, that starts to accumulate. They miss a week of school every month. And before long, they've fallen so far behind that their family just says it doesn't make any sense for you to go to school. So again, there's lots of organizations now. There's something called the PAD Project that's out there trying to help girls with menstrual um, pads and, and providing facilities. There's a lot of other groups as well that are trying to help girls um, have that uh, ability to stay in school once they, they start their periods. So that's a, you know, those are huge factors. The other, the other thing that happens is girls get married off very early. Uh, if you're in a poor family, um, a girl uh, sometimes has what they call a bride price. Someone will pay for your daughter uh, to, to marry her. And that's a huge incentive for a family that, you know, they don't have enough food. They don't have enough uh, money to go around. Girls are married on sadly at a very uh, high rate at a very young age. So uh, we have, you know, 12, no, I think it's like how many millions of girls are married before they're uh, 18 years of age is just, is just ridiculous. Again, uh, Girls Not Brides is another organization that does a great job. World Vision is doing a great job of helping um, educate people, educate uh, 
even faith leaders, about the fact that girls should not be married at such an early age, that they should they should have the right to get an education and have a family later, you know, enjoy their family um, when they're old enough to actually make a decision to marry. Neil, you mentioned too, you know, the Pad Project, Girls Not Brides. You have a, an amazing list of not only organizations but also technical technological innovations that are that are being developed to serve young women. You list a bunch of them in the book. What are what are some of your favorites? If there's a family who's listening today and they've got, you know, two teenage daughters who want to try to figure out how to give other adolescents mm-hmm. opportunities that they didn't have, and they've got two hundred and fifty dollars to give, what what projects are at the top of your list for maybe them to pursue or get behind? Yeah, there's so many. You know, I'm a big fan of World Vision. Um, I've seen their work all over the world and I've seen how they really do. They actually have a person who's in charge of looking at all their programs and looking at gender equity um, in their programs. So they make sure that the girls are really taken care of wherever they are. Um, You know, they do all kinds of things like they pack backpacks um, where girls can use the materials that are in the backpack to go to school. And also they they include some... um, some hygiene products in the, in the backpacks. And, you know, I, I was at a luncheon once where we were back, packing these backpacks and I thought, well, this is a nice project. I mean, you know, I hope it, I hope it helps somebody. And then I was in Jordan um, and I was seeing these refugee, these Syrian refugee girls, and they were showing me their backpacks. This was all they had. And they had come from World Vision and um, they were giving them um, just not only um, the ability to go to school, but such pride in having something that was theirs. That's one kind of project. Another is water is a huge issue. Contributing to the development of a well in a village is something that a church can take on or a group of people can take on. It costs about $15,000 to, to dig a well, but it changes the lives of hundreds of people for years and years. And when girls don't have to go and gather water, um, it makes a huge difference in their lives. It also makes them healthier, obviously. They're they're obviously getting clean water as opposed to the dirty water that they collect. So uh, a well project is a huge thing. Um, the, you know, some of it too is uh, we can just do, make better choices in what we consume. Um, vitamins, there's a, a, a group called Vitamin Angels. And if you buy certain certain kinds of vitamins, certain brands of vitamins, they will contribute to vitamins for uh, prenatal and uh, adolescents in the developing world. And I mean, that's a huge, uh, important uh, factor in uh, child development and in uh, prenatal uh, uh, health as well. That's great. Speaking of medical, you'd also indicated that there might be opportunities for people who are are nurses or uh, occupational therapists or doctors to participate on short-term initiatives. I, th- I believe that you mentioned mm-hmm. an organization in the book that allows people to do that. Yeah, there are a couple. Um, I mean, one is Medical Teams International, which is um, out of the uh, of Oregon, I think. Um, and they have a, a great program. Um, there are also, um, I, I, you know, some of them, depending on on how long you want to um, contribute and how long you want to be there. Of course, there's uh, Medicine Sans Frontier, um, which is, you know, I think they have a six-month program. Um, but there are, um, I think there's, gosh, I'm trying to think of all the names of the of the organizations. They're definitely all in the book. But um, we definitely, you know, if you are someone with a medical background, you can volunteer. Um, there's also a big need for volunteers to help uh, children who have, developmental disabilities. There are, is increasing need for that. And so um, I have a list of, of organizations in the book where if you have a heart for disabled children, 
um, there are some local ministries that are doing incredible work um, in Uganda, Zambia, a number of, of other countries, and they need people to help. Dale, you talked about uh, your opportunity to visit a refugee camp in Jordan. What was your initial entry point into the Middle East? How what was your what were your earlier visits like, and how did that region of the world kind of get its get, get burrowed into your into your heart? Well, honestly, I like so many people. I I grew up, you know, reading the Bible and going to Sunday school and hearing about the Holy Land, and I could never quite make connect the dots between the Holy Land and the Middle East. I mean, it just, I had this sort of biblical reference, and then I didn't really understand how to connect it um, practically to what I would hear in the headlines. So um, I started, uh, you know, doing some research, and I ended up writing a book, as you know, a very simple book um, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, mostly because I needed to understand it. And I started to dive in and tried to, you know, just get down to the very basics and understand more about what was happening in the Middle East. And so that's what took me down that journey. And uh, it's a journey that's continued for many years. So speaking of that, uh, as we're recording this, the a, a recent conflict has resurfaced uh, in, in, in Gaza just, just a couple of days ago. Dale, what are, for people who have no backstory, how do you explain what Gaza is and how, how we got to where we are. I know that there are many, many layers to that, but if you're, if you were to give kind of the, the thumbnail sketch of uh, mm. why just the, the geography and the history and just to the kind of the, the current flare up. That's a tough one. I will say two things. First of all, two terrorist groups, Hamas and Hezbollah um, have been threatening Israel's existence for a very long time. Um, I do not think, they are smart, um, as, as some people have said. I think they are just terrorist groups who will do anything they can to disrupt uh, the future of Israel. And I would like to think that Israel is a lot smarter than these groups and can, can really combat them in a, in a much better way. Um, Gaza itself is a, is a very small area. I mean, it's, it's about the size of New York City or Washington, D.C., but has more than 2 million people. It's a very dense, highly populated area. And, um, you know, it's it's full of people who are just trying to conduct their lives, um, really have, have lived there for a long time, or people who were displaced when Israel became a nation and they had they were living in the, in the area where Israel now exists, and so were uh, moved to Gaza. Um, you know, it's the conflict is that it's been pretty much walled off from any outside uh, uh, intervention. Uh, people can't it, the Israelis, to their credit, would let people come into Israel for um, medical care and that type of thing. But for the most part, if you lived in Gaza, you couldn't get out of Gaza. And um, you couldn't if you were a fisherman, you couldn't fish more than about three miles outside the limit of, of your um, your shoreline. Um, there was, you know, it's just not a very good existence, to be honest. And people, I think, have become very frustrated. Um, that is not in any way to say that what Hamas has done is understandable or rational or acceptable. But Hamas has, I think, you know, just become a very um, extreme form of frustration uh, against the Israeli uh not well. They don't. They don't say they're occupying Gaza, but they are controlling Gaza. What do you say to people who just kind of throw up their hands and say, "You know what? The Middle East is a mess. It's always been a mess. 
violence begets violence. We're just going to wash our hands or just going to hope that, you know, more, more bombings will kill more bad guys and everything will get better. Like what, what do you say to people who don't understand the nuances and can, or maybe prone to get caught up in the rhetoric? Like, is, is there any hope? Is there any traction? Is there any wisdom that can lead followers of Jesus to a posture that is, that is prayerful and uh, hopeful and, and appropriately mournful? Yeah, well, one thing I would say is, I, for some reason, we seem to forget that there are Christians in Gaza and Christians in the West Bank. And, um, you know, we need to be praying for them. I mean, if we really believe that they are, um, you know, that they have the hope, uh, then we need to be supporting them and praying for them. So um, there are Christians in Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, and we should first be be praying for them. I do believe there is hope. I do believe that Israel deserves to exist. There needs to be a home for the Jewish people where they can be safe. Um, but in order to do that, they need to leave it, live at peace with their neighbors. And I think that there needs to be a just um, solution so that the Palestinians can live a, a decent life as well and are not um, you know, always lashing out against Israel. And it's not sustainable for Israel to continue to uh, control the West Bank and Gaza. They've got to find a way to maybe engage an Arab neighbor like Egypt or Jordan, um, as they have in the past, and do a better job of helping people live their own lives. You know, it takes such so much energy for Israel to have to to deal with this um, and, and really uh, spend so much time controlling the Palestinians when you know, the Palestinians want self-control. You know, the, the recent events, again, Israel will, will do what Israel does to defend themselves and their sovereignty. And um, But in a couple of weeks, this will likely fade out of view for most of the average news readers and watchers. But but the damage that's been done on both sides of this conflict will, will linger on for years, if not decades. What's what's the responsibility of the church in the U.S. to to try to figure out how to serve victims of trauma, both in southern Israel and in, in Gaza in the years to come? Because this isn't going away. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, the very the very first person um, I heard talk about uh, Israel uh, was an Israeli woman who'd lost her son um, to Palestinian violence. I mean, uh, he'd been killed by a Palestinian. And she said, um, you know, don't don't be pro-Israel, don't be pro-Palestine, be pro-peace or leave us alone. And mm. I was so struck by that. I mean, she she has the right to tell me that. <laughs> she has the right to tell us all that. She's living it. She's lived it. And so if we are not pro-peace and we are not trying to find a way to help uh, advance peace, then we really need to stay out of it because I, the nuances are just incredible. I mean, you know, there's all this generational um, trauma from the Holocaust and, you know, so many people are dealing with so much that, you know, just listening and praying and, um, you know, that, that's about really the best we can do in so many ways. Uh, I don't think getting involved in the sense that we support one side or the other is is the solution. Um, I think we just need to uh, be prayerful and ask for a divine intervention because I think that's the only way that things are going to really change. Bill, you mentioned a, a a woman who you heard tell your story, and one of the one of the things that I've continued to hear is that if there are people who are giving um, traction for peace and empathy and compassion and understanding and healing. 
it it tends to be led led by mothers and women. Uh, why why yeah. is that the case, and and why can we be confident uh, that if we invest in 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 women led organizations, NGOs, ministries, we we can see some some traction. We can see the needle move on this issue. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that's so important is investing in girls. Girls are peacemakers just by nature. Uh, girls don't usually start wars. Girls and women, um, they they care about their families. They care about the future of their families. They care that their children don't go to war. Um, and so that's one of the things too is that women are by nature pacifists. Um, they want to protect everything that um, is is holy in a family. And, uh, you know, and I, I don't mean to, to stereotype, but men tend to, you know, to want revenge and, and want to uh, start wars. And most of the wars have been started by men. So, um, you know, investing in women, investing in, they, they tend to want to invest in their community and come back. And, and that's one of the things that the World Bank and UNICEF and others have said, when you invest in girls, um, you know, you give them an education, they come back and they make sure their children get educated. When you invest in girls and give them a better life, they come back and break the cycle of poverty. I mean, that is, that's really powerful stuff. Um, when we have talked about how do we, how do we overcome poverty? How do we overcome conflict? How do we overcome all these things? Investing in girls is the way to do that. And it's such a obvious and yet, um, you know, for some reason we seem to ignore it over and over again, but girls um, are the answer to so many of the world's problems. And, and that's uh, where I think we need to, to really invest our time. You know, what what can and should education look like for young girls, especially in complex uh, religious or demographic cultural challenges like the Middle East? Uh, in the book, you talk about how places like Afghanistan have been traditionally unfriendly towards educating young women. How do we how do we try to figure out how to empower certain organizations that want to educate young girls in the Middle East without painting every Muslim is anti-women, anti-female, anti-education in really broad strokes? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to be careful because the Middle East has a lot of different groups of people. The Palestinians actually are very pro-education. Uh, Palestinian girls actually have a very high rate of education, and it's a big priority um, for Palestinians to educate their girls and boys. So you'll find when you look at the rate of education or the rate of school enrollment, it's actually quite high for Palestinians. That's something that we have to you know, be careful of, of putting all the groups together. Afghanistan the Taliban, like many extremist groups, is afraid of education. They don't want their girls to be educated because educated girls make better decisions. They make better decisions about their leadership. They make better decisions about their communities and their lives. Um, I just was, I just spent some time with a, a young woman, an Afghan woman who actually used to work for World Vision. She was able to get out before the Taliban completely took over. She has a PhD. She's a, she's a, a water engineer. And she had to leave because her education, because the fact that she was helping other women in her community was a threat to the Taliban. I mean, she, she wasn't trying to fight the Taliban. She was trying to help women. And that is something that we've got to, you know, we've got to root out and say, that's just wrong. I mean, whenever, whenever a group of people says that education is a problem, we've got to really examine that and say, what, what's going on here? And unfortunately, that's that's not a mindset that's unique to the Taliban or to Afghanistan. I mean, there, there are certain subsets of of Protestant evangelicals in the United States that believes that that women 
you know, have a relegated role in, in the church and society and culture. And so I, I love hearing you say that this, this doesn't just matter in far away underdeveloped corners of the world. This matters here at home as well, that we, we empower our daughters and our granddaughters. We equip them, we inspire them, and we release them to do the work that they're uniquely, uniquely equipped and called to do. Absolutely. I mean, I, I just want every girl, um, you know, like my granddaughter to imagine a world where, things are peaceful, where things, where conflict can be overcome by, by peace talks, where, um, where girls can thrive and soar. And I think that's a very different world than we live in right now. And I, and I really hope and pray that that's the future of our world where girls, not because they're militant or, you know, strident feminists, but because they are fully who they were created to be and can, can contribute to the world and contribute to their communities in the best way possible. Yeah, before we go, talk a little bit about uh, human trafficking and about how that is significant as well, because that's been definitely like a like a, a hot button issue. There's a film that came out, you know, within the last couple months yeah. that, that garnered a lot of attention. And I think that people get really excited and inspired about dramatic rescue stories, but sometimes they don't stop to think about some underlying causes and how how ordinary education and economic empowerment really is, but how critical it is to stem the tide of these kinds of uh, crises before before girls are, are at the risk of being abducted. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the whole uh, human trafficking is just such a, a horrible uh, situation. And it's just so hard to imagine that people will prey on little girls like that. But unfortunately, we find more and more little girls on the streets. I mean, we, we find families are broken, and we find even in the US where foster care and other other things that we've set up to try to take care and protect girls are not really protecting girls. So we have to look at all the systems that are, are set up, but we also have to realize that um, there are predators out there that if, you know if we if we allow girls to fall out of these systems, if we're not uh, vigilant, um, then this this kinds of horror can actually happen. So uh, I think we need to, one of the things that I, I think we need to do is, is certainly strengthen our foster care system. You know, I think that's one of the things that we can do is become even short-term foster parents to, to girls who are falling out of the system. It's, a, it's such an important factor because, you know, there are families that just abandon their children. Um, they are either fall into drug uh, problems or, um, you know, one thing or another happens and they just choose not to, to be good parents. We need mechanisms to help take care of these these girls. Yeah, what's your hope for the book? Like if, if it gets in the hands of the right people, what would you like to see them do with the knowledge that they that they gain as a result of reading A Strong Girl, Strong World? Well, there's so many things that um, I try to do in the book that will point people in a direction that they can take. I mean, if they have 10 minutes, there's something that they can do. Um, if they want to invest in girls, there are so many different ways that they can do it. So it's not so much my hope for the book as it is my hope for the many great organizations that I mentioned in the book. I want people first to be educated. I mean, I think, you know, like anything, once we understand, then we can start connecting the dots and say, oh, now I understand why water is important. Oh, now I understand why education is important. Now I understand that it's important for girls to not get married too early. Once you understand those things, then you can be a, um, a good contributor. You can donate to organizations that really make a difference. Uh, you can invest in organizations and invest in, in programs that make a difference. So start by educating yourself and then, you know, do something. Do, you know, just buy the right kind of vitamin or, or um, contribute to one organization. Uh, those are the kinds of things that really can change the world.
Dale, I can't think of any anybody who is better equipped to write this resource than you. Again, the book is called Strong Girls, Strong World, a practical guide to helping them soar and creating a better future for us all. The author, Dale Hansen Burke, uh, encourage you to pick it up, encourage you to think about how you might be able to use some of the the newfound knowledge and encouragement and recommended resources uh, to give traction to people in a part of the world uh, that you might be familiar with or a part that's not yet on your radar. Dale, thanks so much for being part of the conversation. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.